You can take your Bible and turn to Proverbs chapter 5. Continue our look into Proverbs. And while you're turning there, I just want to reiterate again just how magnificent the love of God is. I mean, you know, we love people uh, that love us. We, we, we spend money and time and energy devoted to people who are like us, who love us back, who, who somehow fit our, our likes and dislikes and our agendas. But I want you to remember back to when God's love first struck your heart. I want you to think about the pigsty you lived in spiritually. I mean, it's easy to get callous towards the love of God after you've been Christians. One of the most amazing things is the fact that if you study evangelism, the reason that people who are just saved, just come you know, to salvation, are more evangelistic is because they still remember where they came from. They still remember how poor their life was. They still have friends who are lost. What tends to happen is the more mature we get, the less lost friends we have. The less we interact with people in need of the love of God, the less we remember how poor and pitiful and sinful our lives were. I want you to think about the first time the love of God pierced through the dark, damp prison cell of your heart. That a ray of the light of God diffused the darkness. Just pierced it. It's amazing. That he loves sexually immoral people. That he stoops into the stupor of the drunk. That he reaches out to the abuser. That he brings back the legalist. That he cares about the religious. That he loves those who the world deems unlovable. That he's rescuing the perishing in the brothels of sex slavery. That's our God. And that's His love. He loves those who are unlovable, like me and like you. Don't, let's don't ever become immune to the amazing love of God. Let's don't ever do that. And we're dealing with a text today that will help us in this area, I think. It's a difficult text. I do want to say to the parents here, I'm not going to, I'm going to, I'm going to refrain from being explicit, um, but I will speak truth, and I will speak about the subject of sex very frankly today. So um, the point is not to inflame passions, the point is not to cause those who are young to think of things they shouldn't, but the reality of the scripture is that it deals very frankly with sex. It deals very pointedly with it, and this is one of those texts, and Quite frankly, we're going to be in it uh, this week, and then in a couple of weeks we're going to deal with it again. And as we go through Proverbs, we're, we're going to see it just fills the book uh, with instruction on, on this area. 
And so I just want to say that to say, I hope you're not offended, and I pray that your children are not offended. That's not the point. And uh, if so, then I would gladly hear from you and try to make things right. But in Proverbs 5, we find the delicate issue of adultery. You can find the websites and magazine articles dedicated to giving statistics in the area of adultery. And there's whole sites given to this. I, I googled how many people commit adultery in a year. And the, there are, are 14 pages of results. Okay? Whole sites given to supposed research in this area. It seems to be a growing trend in our culture that we're not only committing more and more adultery, but we're studying it, so to speak, more and more, and surveying about it more and more. And I'm skeptical, just to be honest, I'm skeptical of these surveys uh, and the nature of the, of the surveys for several reasons. First of all, very few people who commit adultery are honest about committing adultery. I mean, very few people, even in what are supposed to be blind surveys, give correct answers. Give honest answers. And to be honest with you, since the early 90s, we've been defining adultery so uh, narrowly that a person could in good conscience, not a Christian who hasn't studied the Bible, say, no, I've not committed adultery, and they've done all manner of things that would classify biblically as adultery. Okay, so I just don't trust it for that reason. Secondly, the people who conduct or often do this research have a biased position. First of all, we have a category of people who are selling the idea of adultery to married people. I did not search this one, but let it suffice to say there are, is a whole business, niche business now on the internet for sites advertising free and painless adultery. That they're making a living on it, okay? And they run all these surveys. Now you say, why would they run surveys on adultery if they're trying to sell adultery? Because there could be a lot of reasons. One reason is they want to make it look normal. So they throw out numbers like 60% of people are having affairs. Why? So that the people who come to their site think, well, this is what most people are doing. 80% of all marriages are impacted by adultery in America. That's a stat that gets thrown out there. But... There's no real hard evidence to this. There's just, again, uh, statistical uh, analysis, so to speak. It's hard to do in this area. So I question the bias that way. And then there's also a whole group of people out there who have written and made a living writing and doing tours about the fact that human monogamy is a myth. That humans cannot be monogamous. They cannot live in one-to-one -one relationships all their life. They can't have, from cradle to grave, one sex partner. It's impossible. It's old-fashioned. It's out of date. And so these biased people are often the ones doing the research. And so I just have some questions about that. I don't know the usefulness of it, I guess. Because the reality is we all know adultery is a fact. It is a fact in a fallen, sinful world that people are not committed as they should be in their marriages. For that matter, we know that fornication in our culture is on the rise. And I use the term adultery and fornication, and I will use it. And then there's a reason for that, and this is an aside. I just want to say this in the introduction. We as Christians need to stop talking like the world. 
you no longer in your vocabulary need to refer to adultery as an affair. That's worldliness. I do it. I had to catch myself at it. You see how much nicer that term is? I had an affair. I backed into it. I really didn't know that I was going to have an affair. I didn't see any warning signs of it. I woke up one day. I went to the office. The next thing I knew, I was in the middle of this heated affair. That's the way it gets sold to us. And so people think that's the way adultery happens. Don't People don't like the term adultery. Matter of fact, the world has kind of cut that out of their vocabulary because it's a dirty word. It's a sin-associated word. People don't like to use the term fornication for the same reason. We want, to, we, we want to use other terms. We want to talk about premarital sexual relations. The reason God uses the term fornication in the Word is because that's not seen as legitimate sex. He uses a term that is explicitly uh, to, uh, for the purpose of telling you that's out of bounds. And as the church, we need to adopt this language. We need to use it. So when your friend tells you they've had an affair, you need to gently and lovingly say, no, you committed adultery. And let it just soak. Let it just sit. Let it resonate. Why? Because I'm telling you, and the title of this sermon is, that a wise person, a wise man, rejects the suicide of adultery. And I believe it is that. It is suicide. Emotionally, spiritually, eternally, and physically, it's suicide. And we don't need to dress up what we think is suicide. I liken it to putting the poison in a juice cup. It looks harmless. Spicing the poison up with some kind of flavor like apple juice to encourage people to drink it. It's killing them all the while. So... I, 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 I am just amazed, I think, at the depths to which we will go to soothe our conscience. I don't need statistics to tell me that far too many people in our culture and in the church are falling prey to the sin of adultery or fornication. Our world is changing in regard to sexual ethics, and our marriages are paying a severe price. I sat not long ago across the table from a man whose marriage is in shambles. Because he has been involved with adultery now for several years. And with tears, he said, I never realized what I was doing. The damage that what I have done would do to me, to my wife, to my children. He knew what he was doing, but he thought it was all fun. He thought it had no consequence. He had dulled his conscience to the point he thought it was acceptable. There's nothing sadder to me than to hear the stories or look into the eyes of little, what should be innocent, 15, 16, and 17-year-olds that's lives have been brutally impacted by sexual sin. Because they thought it was just what everybody does. I mean, that's what adults do. That's what the movies do. That's what my shows on Nickelodeon and Disney, that's what everybody's talking about. So I just thought it was okay. I thought it was natural. And their lives are wrecked. And so today I look at Proverbs 5 with you to put us squarely in the discussion of sexual sin. And I want to balance that by saying there is no one here above 
an age of knowledge that is not guilty of sexual sin. There is no one in this congregation. I'm not standing here as a pure, spotless one in the area of sexual sin. I stand with you as all of us being guilty. We're all guilty. This is not a stone about this is not a, uh, a sermon about casting stones. This is a sermon about speaking about real life like the scriptures do and offering real solution, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And community that's honest about our condition. So today we are in the middle of this discussion and it points us to the beautiful, not only the negative, but the beautiful relationship that's only possible in marriage. Let's read this text together and then we want to make some points here. First, let's read. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion. This is the way he's opened the other six lectures that he gave his son. This is the seventh lecture that he's giving to his son. That you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. Now he's going to describe the adulteress. For the lips of a forbidden, see foreign woman, see harlot, see adulterer. That word forbidden. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. And her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end she is bitter as wormwood. Sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. See my title, suicide. Her steps... Follow the path to the grave. Sheol. Eternal death. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. And now, O oh sons, notice the change from son in the first verse to seven sons, plural. Remember, Solomon's not just talking to his son. He's talking to Israel and he's talking to us, all of us. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from the adulteress, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others, and you give your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. See Deuteronomy. What was supposed to happen to those who commit adultery? They were to be stoned by the congregation. The son, now at the end of his life, having all of his past sin coming back to haunt him, is dealing with the fact that when he goes to the congregation of Israel and he stands, he realizes, if these people knew me as I know myself and as some in here know me, I would be ruined. I would be stoned. Now, the positive. We dealt with the negative. He swings to the positive. Look what he says in verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone. 
and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. That's a cleaned up phrase in the ESV. Your translation may read, a lovely hind, which is a deer, and a graceful goat. There is a goat in Israel, a mountain goat. I have not seen them. Bruce Waltke, in his commentary, tells about them. He never understood passages like this until he was in Israel climbing up in the most uh, treacherous terrain of the mountains. And all of a sudden, he came upon a mountain goat. He said, me and my wife are walking along in these crags and crevices where nobody dared to walk. And here this sheep is in front of us, this mountain goat. Long, flowing black hair. Piercing black eyes. Graceful as they climbed where nobody else could even dare go. He's saying, that's who your wife, that's who I want your wife to be, son. I want her to be beautiful. I want her to be blessed. I want her to be, be a, a picture of grace. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated. Be carried away with. Be overwhelmed. Be overly indulged always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Main motivation for not committing adultery and for being sexually intimate in marriage. Verse 21. A man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders, he makes smooth all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. First of all, in this text, we must reject the seductive ways of the adulteress, of the adulterer, that leads down the crooked path of death. We must reject the seductive ways of the adulterer slash adulteress that leads down the crooked path of death. Let's look at this first section, verses 1 through 6. Let's think about it together. What the father tells the son is, pay attention to what I'm telling you, son. Sin does not come dressed in a red suit with little horns and a pitchfork. It comes wrapped in the beauty, the beauty of a woman that seems irresistible, that fills your mind with lying, deceitful seduction, that sole intent is to pull you into a sexual relationship which will lead you to death. That's how sin comes. It doesn't come with a big sign on it that says sin, adultery. It comes seductively. Look at that text there. Her lips drip with honey. Sweet. Tastes good. One of the greatest substances and one of the most plentiful substances in Israel in Solomon's day. A land that flowed with what? Milk and honey. A reference to the thriving pasture land of Israel. More so than any place in the region. Israel, even up till our day, Israel is a beautiful country. 
I have not seen it with my own eyes. I hope one day to see it with my own eyes. But I've, I'm told when you cross over from Egypt or the land between Egypt and Israel into Israel, it is stark, the beauty that's there, the pasture land that thrives. And so the Scripture constantly talks about the land of Israel being this beautiful place that's filled with bees that are making honey, that are drawing from the pasture land to make honey. And he says, that son, the abundance of seductive women cannot be denied. They are on every street corner in, a, in Israel. Men, they're on every street corner in Aniston. Seductive women. Women, men who would love to take advantage of you, sit in the pews around you, sit in the cubicle across from you, and ride in cars next to you in traffic. And you look over and think, boy, he looks so innocent. It's seductive. It not only drips with honey, but it's smooth. It's smooth. This is in relation to the mouth of the woman. Her lips are sweet, and her mouth, when you kiss it, is smooth. It seems painless. It seems fun and attractive. It seems like it's not hurting anyone. And he says, you have to reject this, son, because if you don't reject it, Look what happens in verse 5. Her feet, therefore your feet, will go down to death. Where she's leading you is not painless. Where she's leading you, son, is not free. It's expensive. It costs you your life. How does it cost your life? You say, hey, how does adultery really affect me? I read story after story uh, in prep for this sermon from counselors who talk about the mental, physical, and spiritual toll that, a, a, that an adulterous relationship causes. They talk about their clients as hollow. Eyes that no longer behind them do we see life, but we just see blank stares. Cut off from the ability to be able to rightly relate with others. Because they know they're living this double life of secrecy, they're not able to be intimate with anyone. Because if they're intimate with anybody else, then the forbidden intimacy comes out. So everything becomes a shell game. Everything behind the eyes becomes blank. Counselors that talk about the physical impact. Men that sit in their offices and wither away. Wither away. Can't force themselves to eat. Women who have fallen into this sin who have walked down this path to death, that are filled with disease, that are filled with pain, physically pained at the thought of the life that they, that they now live. The guilt of the conscience, which never lets a man rest. The bags under the eyes. Oh, it's painted for you in Hollywood, didn't it? It's so attractive. It's so fun. It's so innocent. It won't hurt you. Verse 5 says, it will kill you. The question is, which do you believe? Teenagers? Singles? What do you believe about sexual sin? You think it's no big deal? Or do you believe God? 
when through the pen of Solomon he says, it's leading you to death. Many are the men who will spend an eternity in hell because sex in the moment was more precious than eternity with Christ. What started out so harmless has grave result. We have to reject adultery because the seductiveness that it presents leads us down a crooked path that leads us to the grave. And when I see crooked here, there's not just that straight and crooked way of the gospel and not gospel, but if you'll allow this, I think it's also talking about the twists and turns in those relationships. You know, because at the beginning they're so nice and they're so fun and they're so involved and they seem to be giving you all you missed and lacked in life. And then it takes the downward turn only to think you're going to be found out in the nervousness and the scary thoughts of losing everything you have, which pulls you away from it for the moment only to go back to it again. It's an in and out relationship. A crooked, not a straight path. Oh, it doesn't slide like the slide straight from the top into hell. It takes many turns and twists along the way. Sometimes those turns and twists look like I'm getting better. Hey, I had a problem with sex before, but now I don't. I'm doing much better. Put confidence in the flesh and fall back into sin. Okay, so it's a crooked path. But it leads to one place, and that's to the grave. To death. So we will reject, we must reject seductive ways. Secondly, we will lose our standing in the community if we commit adultery. We will lose our standing in the community if we commit adultery because we have rejected the wise instruction of our teachers. Verses 7 through 14. This is just a way to phrase all of what's said there the best we can. The, pro- the bottom line of what I'm saying is, is that you lose your standing. That verse 14 is where I'm at. You're standing at the brink of utter ruin in the assembly. Notice he's still in the assembled congregation, but his life is in shambles. And his life is on the brink of ruin. As I said, in Israel it was a capital offense. But we know historically, as Bruce Walkie again points out, we know historically that people were not being stoned for adultery by Solomon's day. There were so many people committing adultery in Israel that to do that would have taken out a significant number of men in their society. So they stopped doing it. What they began to do was almost the scarlet letter treatment. They began to be put at the edge of the congregation. They began to be despised by their fellow man. They kind of lost standing. And that really relates to us, doesn't it? If you commit adultery in our land, you are not going to be stoned for it. You might get shot for it. I know some women in here that will shoot you. I'm married to one of them. Right? And I know some husbands that could be capable. So you might get shot for it in cold anger and revenge. And I'm not condoning that, please, for the record. I'm not condoning this kind of behavior. That's for the internet and everybody listening in the outside world. I'm not saying we should be getting retribution in these cases. We're going to talk a little later about what I see as a pathway through this sin. But I'm just talking about the seriousness of it. In our society, more than anything, you lose your reputation. You think nobody knows, and the fact is more people know than you know. No. 
and they change in the way they treat you. All of a sudden, they don't want you at their house because they don't trust you with their wife. The conversation kind of gets quiet. Everybody finds something else to do. That's the minor thing. What I want you to see is you're not just losing your community in this community, but you're losing your fellowship with the, with the one who created you. You're cutting yourself off from the one who made you. Not because he hates you, but because your actions are speaking hate to him. Your disobedience is separating you. You'll find less time to spend with him because you have more time to spend pursuing your sin. We have to reject the seductive ways that lead to death in adultery, but we also have to realize the consequences, loss of community. Loss of community. Are you going to realize that you're giving opportunity to this sin? Verse 8, the dad says to his son, keep your way far from her. Some of you men, guys, I'm just being honest this morning. Some of you men are walking the tightrope between faithfulness and adultery. Because you like it. Because it feeds something inside of you to be nearly guilty but not guilty. This dad says, son, it's not that you shouldn't find yourself in the bedroom with this woman. Don't even go near her door. Another proverb will say, walk on another street. You know that this is a possibility and you run from it. Paul says, flee sexual immorality. He doesn't say fight it. He doesn't say go get as close to it as you can and grit your teeth and don't give in. He says run. Teenagers, there's no better instruction than that. You say, well, that's old-fashioned. I mean, if I, if I got to do that, I can't have a girlfriend. Well, most of you aren't old enough or mature enough to have a girlfriend or a boyfriend. That's the reality. And the fact that you're not mature enough and you won't listen to your family your counselors, your teachers, your, their instruction. Hear what this guy's going through at the end of his life. He's now cut off from the community. He's now lost, look, not just this fellowship in community, but look, his honor is given to another. His years are given to a merciless sexual addiction that has no mercy. It has no Conscience, it seeks to kill and steal and destroy. And his wealth is given to strangers. Because soon no one right woman will have anything to do with him. So this man will have to go and actually pay for his sexual problems. Now, before you say, I would never do that. In Birmingham, this two weeks ago, they had a, in Birmingham, Alabama, they had a, a bust of prostitute ring. And the cost of sex in Birmingham these days is 5 to $15 on the streets. That's what these clients were paying. That's what these women were selling themselves for. It leads to death. It's not something to joke about at the water cooler. 
or to stand near to when it seems to be attractive. It leads to death. Did you know that most prostitutes in the ancient world were married? Most of them had husbands. And their husbands would spend months either at war or doing business or on a boat in another country bringing back goods to sell. And these women would then use their bodies to make an income while their husbands were gone. Hosea's wife wasn't an exception. She was a part of a rule. It continued until Jesus' day. In John chapter 8, it wasn't like they had to go looking for a woman who was committing adultery. The temple had become a fest in the festival of booths. Some believe it had become nothing but a huge sexual pagan ritual. It was just going on everywhere. Which points to the heinousness of what those men did. And gives us some insight into what Jesus said. And what I'm saying to you, I'm not throwing stones. What did Jesus say? They throw the woman down. What did he say? Let he who is without sin. I, I think he, what he's saying is the sin of adultery. If you had guys standing here hadn't committed adultery, you throw the first stone. You're innocent? Go ahead. They couldn't. They walked away. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This sermon is about to take a huge flip and become a sermon of redemption. But you can't get there by covering over the heinousness of your action. You can't excuse the bad and say, well, let's don't talk about that. Let's talk about the positives in marriage and the good things about the gospel. No, no, no. We have to see how bad this is. When $12 billion is made in this country every year through the sale and the transmission of pornography. $12 billion just in the United States. Most of it over the Internet. Hundreds of millions of that on child pornography. It's a, it's a huge epidemic of a problem, guys. Ladies. And you think, only guys are guilty of pornography. No. Again, these statistics are just statistics, and I'm as skeptical of them as, as any of them. But we see the rise now. Some saying 27, some saying 30% of women now addicted to pornography in our culture. It's not just a male-only problem anymore. We've got a sexual culture that is leading to death. Death spiritually, death physically, death of relationships, death of marriages. This is an epidemic. And if the church won't speak of it, it will not stop. We can't avoid it. We can't stick our head in the sand and say, well, it won't happen to us. We have to face it head on. Here the father is saying, stay far away from seductive people who are trying to take your honor, your wealth, your life, your standing in the community. Run from them. Flee. Don't get near them. Women, just to get practical, I'm asking you to follow the biblical principle of modesty in your dress. Follow the biblical principle of modesty. Your immodesty is a real problem. When people are coming to the sanctuary of God to look at who's dressed how, that's a problem. 
Be careful about your flirtatiousness with men. It seems innocent, but it sends the wrong signal. It also exposes the fact that you have hidden in your heart a lack of intimacy, most likely, with your husband. That you need the attention of another man points to the fact you don't get the attention you should have at home. So instead of reaching out in flirtatiousness, ladies, go for help. Go for help. In general, women, please seek the attention of your husband and him only in this, in this sexual realm. Don't let your emotions be fulfilled outside your marriage. I think this has two effects. One, it's a danger for all the men out there, but it's also a danger for you because you get your emotional fix off other men, therefore you don't need your husband. And trust me, he knows that. He knows that. He feels that. He senses that. He hurts over it. And he's offended by it. Men, you have to refrain from flirting. Some of you hold important positions in this community, in your business, in, in, and you have to not use that as a platform to get the look of a woman so that you feel good about yourself. We've all being guilty and tempted in this way. We need to restrain from improper relationship with women. If your wife doesn't know about your relationship with that woman, it's an inappropriate relationship. And if she only knows part of it but not all of it, it's an inappropriate relationship. And you can excuse it and you say, well, I work a job where I have to be around a lot of women. Then you got to drink a lot of coffee sitting around the table with your wife. And you got to be open and honest. Because believe me, those secret moments that you're hiding from her are quickly becoming the snare that will pull you down to the grave and kill your marriage. It's like standing at the door of the adulteress in the ancient world and thinking you won't ever go in. We have to stop giving opportunities to women to fill their emotional tanks so that we can be a predator on our, and fulfill our selfish needs for sex when, when our wives are not doing what we think they should in this area. Finally, I would say, men, practically in these verses, what the Father's saying, how do I stay out of the door of the adulteress? Men, we have to, we have to put away every appearance of evil, every hint of evil. We have to do that. I mean, if, you, if in your mind you think this might go somewhere it shouldn't, it needs to end. Today, it needs to end today. And you need to seek help. Just like the woman needs to seek help and accountability from older, wiser women, you need the help of older, wiser men. And the two of you may need the help of a counselor or older, wiser couples. We have to reject the seductive way of the adulterer and adulterous because it's the crooked path of death and because we're losing our standing in the community of faith and the, just the general community around us. The reason we're losing our standing is found in verses 12 through 14. He says, I hated discipline. He hated sermons like this. He sat in the services of Israel and in his mind he hated to hear someone stand and say, sexual sin is real and you could be guilty of it. He didn't want any of that. He didn't want to listen to the reproof of his father. His heart hated that kind of correction. When that older brother comes to you men and says, Hey, what's going on with you and this lady? 
I'm just wondering. You know that comment you put out there the other day in that mixed couples group? And that just, someone right about that. It didn't sit right with me. What were you thinking? What was, and instead of hearing that as love, we hear that as, oh, it's judgmentalism. I'm out of here. Nobody can talk to me like that. How dare someone question my motives? That's what this man did. That's what this son did. And he found himself at the gate of the assembly rather than in the center of the center. He didn't incline his ear to instruction. The clear teaching of Scripture is sex is reserved for the right of marriage and marriage only. But many are rejecting that. and They're not inclined to it. So, there are three categories of sexual sin. I just want to put this out there. Theologically, we're talking about sin. There are three categories of sexual sin. Sin, it's a sin against God. In the fact that He created us for the purpose of of, of enjoying a sexual relationship with one person, with one other person of the opposite sex, I might say. In the bonds of real marriage. And so we are denying the creative purpose of God, therefore it's a sin. Fornication and adultery. Redemptiveness of the sexual relationship. The fact is, Adam and Eve received great redemptive quality in the sex, and that's the truth of a Christian marriage. It's a beautiful thing that people who have dealt with sexual sin all their life now have a home in which to enjoy the pleasures of good, godly sex. That's redemptive. That's gospel-oriented. It destroys. The reason it's a sin against God is because it destroys the picture of Christ in the church. It makes Him look like He would seek out all types of partners in all places rather than only seeking the affection of His church. And the church looks like someone who would prostitute itself to idols rather than to Christ. So it's a sin against God. Sexual sin is a sin against your fellow man. Exodus 20, God gives rights to several things. He says you shall not murder. That's the right to you, for you to have life. Secondly, you shall not commit adultery. That's the right for you to have a sacredness in your home. God granted you that right. He gave it to you. It's God-given. It's not given to you by states that sanction marriages. It's given by God. He gave you the right to property. He said, you shall not steal. He gave you the right of reputation when He said, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. God gave us certain rights which come and derive from Him. Life, home, or a wife, or husband that's committed only to us, property, reputation. So it's a sin against your fellow man. If you're 16 and you're having sex with another girl, neither of you married, you say, who are we hurting? You're hurting your wife and you're hurting her husband. And you're hurting their children. And you're disrespecting and dishonoring her family. And your family. Do I need to go further to talk about how deep this sin runs and how destructive it is? It leads to death. Finally, it's a sin against yourself. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. Paul says, all other sin a man commits is outside of his body. But the sin of sexual fornication and adultery is within the body. Do you not know when you have sex with a prostitute, you... You commit a, you sin against your own flesh, and you are joined to that prostitute while she joins herself to all the other partners she has. It's a sin against you, your own self. You're killing your own self. 
So it's the suicide of adultery. Finally, we must give ourselves to passionate, sexually full Christian marriages. Now the switch. We must give ourselves to passionate, sexually full Christian marriages. Verses 15 through 20. Solomon is encouraging sex within the marriage relationship. It's a godly action for a husband and a wife to enjoy their sexual relationship. Drink water from your own cistern. Israel was a nation that dug out cisterns for themselves. They were private watering holes for catching rainwater and keeping it so that during the drought there wouldn't be a lack for the family nor for the livestock. So what he's saying to this son is your wife is for you and you only. Enjoy her. Drink her water. I don't need to go any further. That one becomes self-explanatory. Drink water flowing from her own, your own well. This speaks to the abundance of the sexual relationship. Not only the committedness of the relationship, but the abundance of it. It's not just that you drink stagnant water from a cistern. No, that's not complete. That speaks to personal private property. Wells in their day generally weren't private property. They were used communally. So he's not talking about the, the relationship in the committed sense when he talks about the well. He's talking about the frequency and the joy of it and the, 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 overwhelming, the overwhelming nature of being refreshed by cool water on a warm and hot day of hard work. That's what he's saying to his son. Just like when you pull back up into town and you go to the well and you get that cold well water, not the cistern water. That might be a little bit touchy. It's in the shade. It's got a little room temperature to it. That well water comes from down deep and it nourishes you in a way you couldn't have even imagined. That's what your wife is to be to you, men. That's what she's to be to you. We shouldn't be polluting our wells. We shouldn't be polluting our wells. We shouldn't be stopping them up. We shouldn't be keeping them from producing the life-giving, nourishing water of a pure sexual relationship. Hebrews 13, I just commended to you, says keep the marriage bed undefiled. But read the whole text. The way you do that is by trusting God, women, that your husband, that your husband should receive from you. And men, you should trust that she's giving to you. And not be a taker and not be a, 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 a hindrance on either side. Cisterns, and wells. That's what, our, what, what he says about the wife. Then he asked this confusing question. There's a confusing section here in verse 16 and 17. There's a lot of debate about this. But I land on the point that what he's saying here. Is that he should seek satisfaction only in his wife. Not in the various streams that run through the town. Only in his wife. Only from his sister and only from his well. Look what he says. Let, should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? I mean, that's where the harlot does her plies her trade. That's where the prostitute works is on that street. And he's saying, should you go out to that? Should you give yourself to that? Or to your own sister and to your own well? Let them be for yourself alone. Don't send your wife out needy for emotional attention, men. And don't send your man out needy for sexual attention, women. That's what the Proverbs is saying. This is for you at home in your committed covenant relationship. The conjugal rights of the marriage are to remain sacred and private. Sacred and private. 
verses 18 through 20, Solomon encourages the husband and wife to engage in sex often and indulge in quality intimacy. Look what he does here in the text. Verse 18, he blesses the wife of his son. Let your fountain be blessed. And, so you know what he's talking about, he says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Right? And then he describes her as a beautiful, graceful doe, deer, wild goat. You can laugh. It's okay. I know you women are not impressed. What he's saying is, is that your intimacy should be obvious in your marriage. It should be obvious. It's a private, the sexual intimacy is private, but the intimacy you share, the bond you share, ought to be easily seen by everybody. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. One of the scariest trends we have going on in the evangelical church is the frequent stories of cold marriages. Men who are sexually abusing their wives and women who are bragging to their friends that they haven't, had to have, they haven't had to have sex with their husband for weeks and for months. And we wonder why people don't want to get married. And why they think it doesn't work. It shouldn't be this way. Our goal in marriage should be to fully satisfy our wives and our husbands. Or our husbands. This is, I need to work, work on my connecting words when I'm writing. <laughs> you only have a wife or a husband, not a wife and a husband, okay? So I messed that up. This is the selflessness of marriage. This is the selflessness of marriage. You are in the marriage to serve the other, not yourself. So men, when you say, she doesn't do enough for me, that's a selfish statement. And women, when you say, he takes advantage of me, Often, that's just selfishness coming forth. Just selfishness on both sides. Let me give you some very practical things to apply to your marriage. Sex should be a regular event in your life if you're married. Why? Because you have a healthy, God-centered, gospel-focused marriage. And therefore, sex naturally flows from that. It naturally flows from that. Barring physical or emotional problems. Sex should be frequent, and it should be regular. It shouldn't be seen as a chore to be endured, but rather a blessing from God. Secondly, sex should be adventurous and mutually gratifying. It shouldn't just be some humdrum chore we're going through. So guys, some of us wonder why it's a chore. Talk to your wife about sex. Privately, talk to her, ask her questions. See if you're serving her or serving yourself. Sex inside the marriage should be adventurous and mutually gratifying. Not about you, but about both together. Sex should be a result of a high level of intimacy in your marriage. The question I would ask here is are you pursuing your wife? Men? Are you still going hard after her? How do you go hard after her? Are you, are you romantic with her? Do you flirt with her? Do you compliment her often? Do you serve her needs? 
In other words, you know she's worked hard all day, and you come on, plop down on the couch, sit there till 10.30. She cleans, she cooks, she puts the kids to bed, she gets ready for the next day. You watch Sports Center, and you land in the bed magically thinking, all right, that's my time. And you wonder why you get the cold shoulder. Because when you dated her, that's not how you acted. You held doors, and you cooked dinner, and you put candles out, and you did all these extravagant things. The winner. You're trying to win. Now you got her. Competition's over. Let's all kick it in neutral. Are you still pursuing her? You say, well, I don't really like her that much. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just saying. I mean, you can be a lonely man the rest of your life. Or you can fall, can choose to fall in love with your wife every day. Now, I'm not just talking about sappiness, guys. Notice I put in the list, giving your baby a bath. Serving. I don't know what serves your wife, but you need to know what serves your wife. You need to know what speaks to her. You need to be fulfilling her. Are you spiritually fulfilling her? Are you praying for her? Nothing builds passion like prayer. You're not very intimate for people you don't pray for. Are you praying for her? You studying the word for her? You loving her? You encouraging her spiritually? You leaving her notes with little verses on there for her to read? You sending her texts during the day about a passage you just read that made you think of her? Is that happening in your life? Are you just talking with your buddies about that or the other people at work? What's going on in your marriage? There's usually practical reasons why marriages are cold. So men, you need to be pursuing. You need to be asking the question, am I pursuing my wife at all costs? Am I communicating with her? Am I talking with her about visions and dreams and, and goals in life? Or are we just floating? Women aren't generally attracted to floaters. Are you still women? Are you still seeking the pursuit of your husband? Are you still running after him to pursue you? Or have you fallen into the trap of thinking, well, it doesn't really matter what I look like anymore. Now, I'm not trying to make it all about looks, but let's just be honest here. There's a sense in which it matters, women, what you look like. Whether you care for yourself or not. He sees that. It doesn't make him value very highly. It's just natural. I'm not talking about winning a beauty pageant. Remember, that's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about the rightful, godly care for your body and for, for Him in that way. You need to talk to Him about it. You should care if you are relating with Him. Whether you're connecting with Him, whether you're helping Him, whether you're pursuing life's goals with Him. You should save yourself for His eyes only. So many of our ladies are putting themselves out there for the other men's affections and their husbands are seeing it and being abused by it and being beat down by it and they just give up in life. They're not pursuing you because you're pursuing everybody else, ladies. Pursue Him. Put the energy you put into pursuing others into Him and watch what happens in your marriage. As we close, I just want to read this to you quickly. I know it's been a long sermon. I know it's been a lot of information but I think it's important. Tim Keller says, reflecting on sex before marriage and how it's wrong and unwise, and you can apply everything he says to the marriage. 
Both those aren't married and those who are married should be listening here. The modern sexual revolution. Find the idea of abstinence till marriage or monogamy in marriage to be so unrealistic as to be ludicrous. In fact, many people believe it is psychologically unhealthy and harmful. Yet despite the contemporary incredulity, this has been the unquenched uniform teaching of not only one but all the Christian churches, Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant. The Bible does not counsel sexual abstinence before marriage because it has such a low view of sex, but because it has such a lofty view. The Bible, the biblical view, implies that sex outside of marriage is not just morally wrong, but also personally harmful. If sex is designed to be part of a making a covenant and experiencing the covenant's renewal, then we should think of sex as an emotional commitment apparatus. If sex is a method that God invented to do whole life entrustment and self-giving, it should not surprise us that sex makes us feel deeply connected to other people, another person, even when used wrongly. Unless you deliberately disable it or through practice you numb the original impulse, sex makes you feel personally interwoven and joined to another human being as you are literally physically joined. In the midst of sexual passion, you naturally want to say extravagant things such as, I'll always love you. Even if you are not legally married, you may find yourself quickly feeling marriage-like ties, feeling that the other person has obligations to you, but that other person has no legal, social, or moral responsibility to even call you back in the morning. The incongruity leads to jealousy and hurt feelings and obsessiveness of two people are having sex outside of marriage. It makes breaking up vastly harder than it should be. It leads many people to say, stay trapped in relationships that are no good because of a feeling of having somehow connected themselves. Therefore, if you have sex outside of marriage, before or after marriage with someone other than your partner, you will have to steel yourself against sex's power to, to soften your heart toward another person and make you more trusting. The problem is that eventually sex will lose its covenant-making power for you. Even if you one day get married, ironically then, sex outside of marriage eventually works backwards, making you less able to commit and trust another person. That's from his book, The Meaning of Marriage. I recommend it to you. What am I saying? The last verses say, A man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders his paths. God is watching over. Finally, I would say, we are under the watchful eye of the Lord in regard to our sexual lives. And are we living a life of glorious worship to God in this area? Let me just end this way. What is sex to a marriage? What is sex to a marriage? Why am I telling you don't deny it within your marriage or step out on it in your marriage or step in it before you're married? Why am I so stressing that this morning for this reason? God laid down a relationship between humans that represents His relationship with the church. It is marriage. That picture is a physical representation of what it means to be Christ in the church. Not the other way around. Christ is not the example. We're the example. So Christians. When we think of sex, we should think of it in terms of salvation. Now I want to not be too hard here. But look at the, look at the, the analogy. See if it doesn't work. In salvation, you have the Father and the Son covenanting together with the Spirit who seals your, mar your marriage to Him, your relationship to Him. The Spirit seals that. And the Spirit is what He leaves with you always, that you don't feel alone. Marriage is between a man and a woman, 
and God gives to them the spirit of sex that joins and seals them together like nothing else against the day of redemption in their marriage till the death do us part statement can be made till somebody's laying cold in the casket I'm going to give myself to my partner my partner to me and only that way because it's like the seal of the Holy Spirit it is the renewal of your covenant vow every time you have sex now ladies just humor this if we said hey let's have another marriage ceremony 50 years into our marriage let's renew our vows publicly most of you would sign up. Because you'd think, man, that would be so fun to get married again. I only got to do it one time. You have the opportunity to say your vows every day. It's called sexual relations. That's what God's saying about sex. Sex in the marriage is like the Holy Spirit, which brings community and love into the heart of the believer and seals them for redemption in the day of salvation, carrying them into eternity. And what disappears in eternity? Sex. Sex doesn't exist in the new heavens and new earth. Why? It's not needed. Why? Because we worship Christ in the flesh, face to face, Eye to eye, there's no need for sex anymore. Sex is the closest you will come in this life when it's in between a marriage bond to the other side. Who in here would say, I don't want none of that? So if that's what you're saying right now, I'm not beating up on you, but if that's not what you're saying about your relationship, something's broken. Something's broken. If you're saying, i got to endure it every six weeks, something's broken. That'd be like saying, i gotta, I got to endure worship in heaven, every, in, in the new heaven, new earth, every six weeks. I mean, my goodness, Jesus makes us. What? God's watching. God's watching his children in their marriages. And he's saying, this is not how it should be. Or he's saying, this is how it should be. How then do we regain what's been lost? Through the penultimate, the ultimate, not the penultimate, but the ultimate relationship. Your relationship with Jesus Christ. Treat your relationship with Jesus Christ as if, as if it, re, it, it requires or it, it depends on your marriage. Work at your relationship with Christ knowing that if you don't, your relationship with your wife or your husband will die. Apply the gospel is the point. We could say so much more. I mean, this is something I've thought a lot about because I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness of so many of the ways in my life now and in the past. We serve a forgiving God, a redeeming God, a loving God. So I just want to encourage you, if you're here today in sexual sin, whether that be sexual sin outside of marriage, before you're married, sexual sin in your marriage, with your wife or husband, sexual sin with someone outside your marriage bonds. We're going to offer you the opportunity just as you leave to just step aside and have prayer. There will be people at each door as you leave. And you, do, you can pray right there. You can give them your number. You can slide them a piece of paper that says, I need to talk to somebody this week. This is serious. And there's not a couple in here that doesn't need to be thinking about this subject. So I want to... Uh, close our service this way. I want to pray.